This is the Education Gadfly Show. And then it was like, what? And we looked at the game on the ESPN. It was crazy. Yeah. Very fun. Yeah, yeah. All right. Enough with the <laughs> March Madness talk. I have exercised all of the sportsing knowledge that I currently possess. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Alyssa Schwenk of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my co-host, the Middle Tennessee State of Education Reform, Brandon Wright. Hi. Uh, <laughs> are, you, are you calling me obscure and unlikely to win? I am calling you inspirational and rising above the challenges of bull and all sorts of positive things that middle tennessee state was last week when they just stunned everyone by beating michigan state i have to say that i like seeing the spartans lose i was gonna um, say as a michigan know, alum yes i grew up near ann arbor and went to school there and uh they've had our number in football lately basketball for a very long time i mean yeah they're um killing so, it not gonna lie i, I like seeing them lose but what did it do to your bracket? Because you're at the top of the Ford rankings right now. I think I'm in second. You're in second, but the tire, Clara's like ninth or tenth. I'm, I think, tenth or eleventh. We have, I believe, both of our like names have something to do with like sportsing is a thing, and you seem to like have a little bit more control <laughs> over this whole March Madness thing. Uh, well, I think everybody had him going far, so mm-hmm. if it hurts everyone, it doesn't really hurt anybody. That's so. true. I think I'm all right. I will say, so Ellen, our coworker, was actually 20 for 20 perfect picks through like this Michigan State game. And as the game was happening, like I was so stunned by the fact that her picks were still perfect. I was spending a ton of time like trying to figure out the statistics of all of this. And then another coworker walked by and he's like, you know, she's about to lose because Michigan State's about to lose. And then it was like, what? And we looked at the game on the ESPN. It was crazy. Yeah. Very fun. Yeah. Yeah. All right, enough with the March Madness talk. I have exercised all of the sportsing knowledge that I currently possess. Clara, it is time for Pardon the Gadfly. GOP presidential candidate John Kasich has been attacked by the left for his record on Ohio charter schools. Has the governor really orchestrated as big of a disaster as his critics claim he has? Oh, our friends in Ohio were not happy with a lot of this coverage earlier this week. So the situation is John Kasich has been the governor of Ohio for quite some time, and even preceding his tenure here, Ohio's had had some pretty messy charter laws. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they've had a lot of trouble with regulation. They've been notoriously unable to like really tamp down this wild, wild west of charter law in Ohio. And it's led to a proliferation of some really good charters, but also some really not great actors in the field. Yep. And about a year and a half ago now, Fordham actually published a couple of reports, check them out on our website, looking at the performance of kids in Ohio charter schools versus kids in public schools. And we found that in most cities, kids in traditional public schools outperformed their charter school classmates. We released this in tandem with, um, you know, a list of recommendations to improve the regulations around charter schools. And maybe a month after they were published, John Kasich said, you know, like improving charter quality is going to be our number one legislative priority in the state this year. And this was in January of last year. And you know what? He made it that. And HB2 passed the House, passed the Senate, was signed into law last fall by him, and he's has been a proponent of charter qualities. So from my perspective, you know, he's been getting a little too much of the tomatoes thrown at him. It's been he's been getting a lot of blame for something that isn't necessarily his fault. Brandon? Yeah, yeah. I'm I mean, I think he took 
the rains when charter schools were pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2009, uh, Credo, pretty sure, ranked Ohio charter schools among the worst in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've improved a lot since then, um, improved a lot under his watch. And fixing these schools is really hard, right? If, if, if you start opening schools in a way that allows kind of bad or ineffective actors to open schools, it's hard to reverse course. Yeah. But that's essentially what Ohio is doing now. Um, so you have these bad schools that they're trying to improve. You close them. Closing schools is very mm-hmm. complicated. It can be a bad choice, right? Like if you close a bad charter school, what if the district school is Even just worse. as bad yeah. or worse? What do you do? So I think they've taken a lot of steps to improve schools of choice in mm-hmm. the state of Ohio. And I think they're on the right track. Um, so I I don't think he deserves a lot of the, the blame he's getting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I will say, too, you know, Education is primarily a local issue, and if you are an education voter in a Republican primary or caucus, and you've got Kasich, you have Ted Cruz, and you have Trump, like Kasich has a much longer and much stronger track record on education and much deeper understanding on those issues than either of the two opponents right now, sure. wouldn't you agree? So Definitely. Definitely think that he is getting um, a lot of blame for a problem that did not entirely create. Part of the blame, too, right, is because he's been the governor of a state, he's had a Mm -hmm. much bigger hand in education policy when you do more you have more kind of stuff out there to attack. Um, And I think that's a big part of it too. Uh, Trump obviously um, hasn't held office and Cruz is a senator. senator. So yeah. All right, Clara, question two. Washington state recently passed a bill that may give its charter schools a second chance. How does this bill differ from the law that the state Supreme court ruled unconstitutional? All right, Brandon, put that law degree to good use. Explain this issue to me. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure I'm actually going to use my law degree. Uh, But I know a little bit about charter schools, too. So just a little bit of background. Uh, Back in September, the state's high court ruled the charter law in Washington state unconstitutional. They primarily took issue with the fact that um, the schools were overseen by appointed boards as opposed to elected boards or or, or could be overseen by appointed boards. Um, And that, according to six of the nine justices on the court, disqualified them from being common schools, which meant they couldn't get the funding that they were currently receiving. And so, a common school is a public school. It's their version of a public okay, school, right? Okay, sure. I I, I wasn't going to answer, answer that because I wasn't positive, <laughs> and uh, it seems like a legal question. But uh, but yeah, so they essentially said that these these charter schools, the way they were being funded and 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 ran, weren't common schools. So the Supreme Court was asked to reconsider this in November. They refused. Um, at the time of the decision, there were nine charter schools open in the state. Now there are eight. Uh, one of them reverted back to a private school. These eight are still open mm-hmm. as schools. They're they're being ran as like special school programs or homeschooling centers. Uh, but I think that was only a stopgap for this year. Mm-hmm. If they didn't pass another charter school law, they would close next year. Um, but the legislature just passed a bill um, that would allow these schools to remain open mm-hmm. going forward. Um, the governor hasn't signed it yet, but the bill is different from the original bill. 
uh, by allowing the schools to be funded from the state lottery as opposed to the general education fund. And it appoints at least one person to the board that's, that's elected the uh, state superintendent. So on these appointed boards, they now have at least one elected person mm-hmm. and it's funded differently. So the, the proponents of the bill think that this will overcome the legal challenges. A number of people, however, are skeptical and think that it'll be open to challenge and might again be overturned mm-hmm. or ruled uh, unconstitutional. Yeah, it's certainly something to watch. But what it does make me really think of is uh, our colleague Aaron Churchill wrote a piece in the 74 a couple of weeks ago about kind of our elected school boards actually democratic. And when you know what you see in these turnouts, even for, you know, school boards for local public schools is the turnout's very low. 20 percent. It's very, very low. In the piece. It's one of those things that if that it's like the amount of millennials who vote and then we always get yelled at. It's infuriating, but it's this very low turnout and it's primarily people who are voting like from a special interest perspective. Yeah, I think I think somebody who was involved in schools were five times more likely to vote in the election than the average voter. Right, which kind of begs the question, like, are these boards as democratic and as publicly as elected as, you know, they're using this entire basis of a legal argument for when we're saying that an appointed board where people might be really engaged and thoughtful and informed on the issues and they're, you know, recruited to be on these boards, like isn't as good as this board that's been elected by a very small percentage of the population. And that percentage like also comes with a very set frame of reference and position on a lot of these issues. So to me, it's kind of gets to this broader question of like, how democratic are how democratic is school governance? Should it be super democratic? So there's kind of this like ripple effect of these larger questions that it's really raising for me that I'm interested to see how it develops and what people come up with. Right. And even for the elected boards, like in the state, um, they're state board of education mm-hmm. is mostly elected people but the chair is appointed, appointed right yeah. so just like the state board of education the these these appointed charter boards are made up of a mix of elected mm-hmm. and appointed people i think when you look at how you oversee schools expertise is important Mm -hmm. for a charter school knowing how to run a nonprofit is important having expertise for schools is important and if you have a democratic election where only 20 percent of people show up and it's between say two major party candidates aaron's piece also pointed out that in the primaries the the turnout is 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 even smaller i think he he cited one where only six percent of adults voted in the primaries for the candidates that would end up trying to get onto the school board. So if oh, you have just two choices, right, and both people might not actually have the expertise that you would want to run schools, right? So it's 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 an open question. I think there are there are pros and cons to both mm-hmm. appointed and elected boards, but I don't think just because a board is appointed that it is bad. Right. right? There 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 are benefits to that as well. Well, it's certainly something to watch. And until more develops, Clara, question three. Alyssa, as a former teacher, (laughs) what do you think of Mike's recent suggestion that instructional videos be incorporated into class time as a new way of engaging kids? Oh boy, he and I go back and forth on this all the time. And I like through this when I saw this was coming up and I saw uh, the Ed Next piece that he wrote, which is called Children Be Quiet and Watch Your Lesson. Um, I sent it to a couple (laughs) of my friends who are still teaching um, and they had... I would say their reactions went from kind of like, eh, to, oh my God, no, um, on kind of the scale of 
responses. And to me, you know, Mike makes this point in his piece that videos are the best way to engage kids from a, you know, range of, you know, skills and reading levels and capacities in a lesson and to teach them this critical content knowledge, which we know, which Robert tells us all the time, which we see in research, like content knowledge is incredibly important to learning how to read, to being an informed citizen, to performing well in school, to being ready for college, career, and what have you. Um, At the same time, like, I used to teach kindergarten and we would sometimes plop the kids in front of maybe a super Y video or something like the I day love those days when I was in school. Just love those days. And like Miss Frizzle, she's great. And there are some really great movies out there that do excellent things. And sometimes like as a teacher, if it's the day before Thanksgiving and you have eight of your 22 kids there and you are not going to teach content, you are not going to teach an actual lesson like this is a good way to get content in front of them and also make it feel a little special but you can't just like put a kid in front of a video and be like now watch i'm gonna go clean the you know classroom library because it's a huge mess like you have to support and scaffold particularly at the younger years and you have to kind of build in i think a system of responding and making sure that they're actively listening and learning from the content it's not just like you put them in front of the movie and say see you later like all of my kids could probably sing to you the super Y theme song i'm not sure any of them could 10 days later tell you what they had learned in that lesson so there's a like mechanism of accountability and engaged listening that really needs to be brought in if you're going to be using video to teach content yeah yeah, i mean i i I think you have to be careful with this but if done right if you have on point streaming um i think in mike's piece he talks about right a teacher essentially sets of different stations she rotates through them mm-hmm. some of them she's directly interacting with the mm-hmm. kids some they're working on i don't know a worksheet or something mm-hmm. and for a um, another, they're in front of an on point, educationally rich streaming option. Uh, I could see how that would kind of provide content um, in a way that's more effective than something else that they might be doing in school. I think, right, that it has to be done well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the videos have to actually be educational and. If you're going to do this and you're arguing that they have an advantage because they keep kids' attention, they have to be educational and engaging, right? Somehow you have to walk this kind of line between entertainment and keeping a a kid's attention and being informative. Mm -hmm. And if it's part of a lesson and kids know it is... I wonder if they'd they'd feel the same way as I felt when I was in school and we actually got to watch a film and the film wasn't actually really meant to be educational. It was just meant to waste time. I thought I was like getting away with something and I thought it was fun and I and I paid attention because <laughs> of those things. But you didn't pay attention to Wishbone? I watched that when I got home okay. from school sometimes. Yeah, okay. yeah I sure, mean, Wishbone sure. was what my teachers used when I was a kid for content. But yeah, I think there's it's not just as simple as putting a kid in front of a, a video. I know when I was teaching, my kids had centers even through second grade and they had all most of them were literacy focused mike would say tisk tisk you should do more social studies i absolutely should have done more social studies but like as part of those centers which they enjoyed a lot more than you know just doing a worksheet or reading a book like they also had to complete activities and like they had a packet for their centers and they had to like complete steps and like demonstrate that in their centers they weren't just you know messing around and like building you know houses with their blocks um so as I like to say to Mike, great idea. How's it going to happen? And for me on this one, it's you got to make sure you're engaging them and ensuring that they're actively listening and learning and that it's it's not just as easy as plopping some kids in front of a video and washing right. your hands of them. Right, right. 
Great idea. idea. Not yet, Mike. We'll talk about it when you get back. (laughs) All right. All right. That's all of the time we have today for Pardon the Gadfly. Thanks so much, Clara. Up next, Amber's Research Minute. with Amber's Research Minute. And this week, the part of Amber will be played by David. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Alyssa. Uh, today, we're going to be uh, looking at a study called uh, entitled, Can Tracking Raise the Test Scores of High-Ability Minority Students? Uh, the studies by David Card and Laura Giuliano. Sorry, Laura, if that's not the right way to say it. Uh, so this is a fascinating study. Uh, it basically looks at a major uh, urban school district, which the authors don't disclose, which implemented a, a policy change in 2004 in which they basically required schools to uh, create a class for gifted and high-achieving students um, if there were any gifted students at the school as determined by an IQ test. All schools or just high schools? Uh, so this is, sorry, this is this is actually elementary school. So okay. we're talking about fourth and fifth graders here. Good. Thank Start you. young. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, so um, in a lot of schools, there are actually very few gifted students um, as determined by the IQ test. So the, the law essentially required that, the policy required that all class sizes be the same. So they filled the remainder of the class size classes with the next sort of most high-achieving students at the school. So essentially what, what they did was they created a According natural... According to a state test, right? Yes, according to a state test. So they created a natural experiment of sorts um, where... Uh, effectively, they, they track students. And this allowed the authors to uh, conduct an experiment where they used a regression and discontinuity design, right? But basically, uh, let me cut to the findings, they fa- which are really interesting. Uh, they found that being placed in the gifted and high-achieving class, so sort of the higher, the, the, you know, the, the, the class for the good students, um, had really significant positive effects on the reading and math scores of the students. Um, and here's the interesting part. The gains were overwhelmingly concentrated in uh, among black and Hispanic students. Um, so white students saw essentially no gain um, from being tracked into the high, higher achieving group, uh, whereas these groups, um, the, the students saw gains that were on the order of half a standard deviation, which is a huge effect. And the gains persisted into sixth grade. It's also interesting that um, it, it seems like these uh, this effect or these, these results are entirely driven by race. Um, so when they controlled for socioeconomic status, they didn't seem to be about that. It seemed to be about race. Fascinating. And uh, second, they also find that there's no negative effect on the other students who are left behind. So essentially, you know, the, the kids who didn't quite make the cut didn't seem to do any worse as a result of these gifted students being pulled out of the classroom. But they didn't do any better. They didn't do any better either. So essentially, it looks like minority students benefited um, if they were high achieving. Everybody else did exactly the same. So what can explain this? So there's there's a couple different potential theories that might explain it, right? It might be that the, the teachers are better, right? It might be that their peers are better and that there's some sort of peer effects or mm-hmm. so, they could just be that the material is more appropriate to them. The authors basically reject all of those explanations and, and say, look, that those don't fit with the evidence that it's only working for students of a certain race. So they go on to say, essentially, and, and show pretty convincingly um, that it probably has to do with other basically affects having to do with negative peer pressure. And the other one that they uh, identify is kind of low expectations for teachers. So essentially, minority students are being um, are not being correctly identified as gifted um, until they get placed in these classes, and mm-hmm. then teachers' perceptions of them change. So bringing back, the, I think, George H.W. Bush line, the soft bigotry of low expectations? Seems to apply, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, one of the really interesting things is they're able to show that there is a gap between the IQ of of black and Hispanic students and their 
performance on standardized tests. Um, so in other words, they underperform on these tests relative mm-hmm. to their documented intelligence, which suggests, I don't know, that they're not being served well. It's really sad. Uh, okay. So so there there's actually no bad effect for any group um, compared to... Yeah, so, th- there is no bad effect for any group, period. So yes. I'm going and to- big effects for certain groups. So... It's actually just a complete yes. gain, a net gain, and tracking, in this case, just Don't isn't bad it. in any way whatsoever. Okay, so I'm going to botch <laughs> a research term right here, and do not laugh. Did they do anything looking, I think, the matched sets where they look at a kid who just missed the cutoff versus a kid who just made the cutoff into this gifted class? So, so the regression discontinuity design essentially does that. Okay, so it it basically compares people on either side of the threshold. Um, So it's pretty convincing and they confirm it with another research design, which we don't have time for um, and find basically the same effects. So suffice to say, I'm I'm extremely convinced as a researcher by this study. Um, What 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 is sort of intriguing to me is that since these effects seem to be driven by race and and questions of race and perception, um, I don't really know how this. Um, positive effect for tracking interacts with questions of integration, right? In other words, sure. w- would this still hold at more integrated schools? Would it be a stronger effect? I, d- I don't know what it means, mm-hmm. um, but I think it's really interesting to think about. Certainly very. Brandon seems excited, and Brandon's our gifted <laughs> It seems like a so great way to close the excellence gap with essentially no bad effects. Brandon is hopping up and down here. I, I love these two. <laughs> <laughs> these two studies are these two people that are mocking the, you right now. <laughs> the, the two people who wrote the study, they've done others they're just great yep i I think we need a better word for it than tracking but um it seems to work yes i think it's come a bad word but this proves that it doesn't have to be tracking isn't just necessarily bad it certainly provides kids it certainly provides personalized uh, education (laughs) individualized education however you want to call it i mean it certainly provides a lot of uh food for thought and a lot of really cool information about how to improve the educational outcomes of a group of kids that are like kind of underserved by all systems incredibly um, underserved they're gifted they're high achieving enough that they're not the focus and but they're not wealthy enough that they receive all of these extra services and stuff so let me, it's let me throw in that way let me throw Alyssa a bone here I, I so i think <laughs> one of the questions the study raises is okay if these sorts of classes are less likely to exist you know at, at mm-hmm. racially isolated schools that might be a problem too so anyway, policy implications can be debated, but it's a fascinating study. All right. Well, it certainly is a fascinating study with tons of food for thought. So thanks so much for sharing it with us today, David. Thanks so much for having me, Alyssa. It's good to see you. And that's all the time we have for this week's Gadfly Show. Till next week. I'm Brandon Wright. And I'm Alyssa Schwenk for the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.